continuing now leading up to the crucifixion of Christ and the events that led to that awful event and it is that Lenten season where we prepare and we get our hearts ready to think about those very important things this is the most important thing that we ever have talked about most important thing that we know that one time a man died on a cross especially for us and rose again on the third day there's nothing else in all the world that comes in front of that and in this world there's a lot of confusion about that we got to make sure we have it right so we're a text in John chapter 12 in John chapter 13, <clears throat> also in Matthew chapter 26, we'll be catching a few phrases from there. John 12 and 13 and Matthew 26. <clears throat> Getting good help seems to be a particularly difficult task these days. Where I work, we had a real streak of bad luck with new help. The first three people we hired never even showed up for work. That's not a good run. The fourth person came in. He worked for three hours. And then he said he couldn't work with poisonous chemicals like glass cleaner. So he went home after three hours and never came back again. So, we weren't doing so good. The fifth fellow we hired actually came to work the first day, which we were surprised, and he worked for a whole week. Wow, that was progress. And then he came and worked the second week, and we were thrilled. We thought we've got our man. But the next Monday morning, I arrived at work, went through my usual routine of turning on my computer and checking my email. Then I opened my desk drawer to get a pen, and I immediately noticed a problem. Now, one of the jobs that I do is to test and repair coin mechanisms. And when you drop your quarters and nickels and dimes into a vending machine, uh, there's a mechanism there that counts your coins, separates them, and gives you back change. In order to test and repair those coin mechs, I keep some change in my desk drawer. Probably about $15 coins, which we use, and 15 quarters, maybe a dozen dimes and a dozen nickels. That's not something I count every day. I just keep enough to test the coin mechs. Well, that morning, when I opened my desk drawer, right away, I noticed that all my dollar coins and all my quarters uh, were missing. All I had was a nickel and dime in the little compartment where I keep my test money. Now, I've had that change for years and years. No one's ever bothered it for years. That morning, I noticed the dollars and the quarters were missing. So I made a natural conclusion. Somebody, probably the new guy, had taken my money. But one of the supervisors came in. I told him I thought the new guy stole my money. And he said, well, we'd have to prove it. 
And just the minute he said that, a fella opened the door, stuck it in his head, and he said, Hey, Eric, I saw the new guy going through your desk Friday night. That seemed to be enough. But they still hesitated for a second, probably because they had such a hard time finding anybody to even come to work. But I said, look, he's a thief. You can never trust him. You can't send him on the road. You can't have him anywhere near money. He's got to go. And just then the office girl came in and said, hey, my money's gone out of my desk. She had a few dollars that she kept to make change. So this fella fella took about $20, I'd say, from my desk and another $20 from the secretary's desk. Now, personally, I can't wrap my head around this fella and how he thinks. It's money. And people know it's there, right? And if it's missing, people notice right away. And so, if you steal it, people are going to notice. $40. Just look at it laying there. Take it, and you lose your reputation. I realize some people don't care about reputation. But if you take it, you lose your job. And it's $40. You make that much before lunch if you're working. And that much again after lunch. $40? Is it worth it? What kind of thinking sees money and absolutely must steal it? Ignoring the consequences. Ignoring every negative possibility and thing that could happen. Do you just steal that money? Can't you resist? I guess not. And so for you, $40, you lose everything. Because there it is, you just can't resist it. And so... Here's a person that you never trust because you don't know when that urge will come over them and they'll abandon all reason and all logic, steal that money, totally unable to resist it. My friends, it is just such a scenario that we find as we begin to look at the events that lead up to the death of Christ. Jesus and his disciples are once again at the house of Martha and Mary for a visit. Now in the past, whenever he came, Jesus always got the red carpet treatment. But now, well, it's apparent for what they used to do that whatever they used to do is not enough anymore. Why? Because Jesus, a few days before, raised brother Lazarus from the dead. And so the red carpet treatment just won't do. We need to do something extra special now. Jesus raised our brother from the dead. So here we go in John chapter 12. Beginning at the first 
verse. And Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which was, had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Serving dinner is just not enough. Something extravagant is required. So Mary takes this very expensive perfume, normally used for anointing your dead loved ones, very expensive. Now, a denarius is what it costs to buy food for a day. Common laborers earned a denarius a day, enough to buy their food for the day. So 300 denariuses is what it would be worth. It's a lot of money. It's a very expensive perfume of the highest quality. And Mary pours it on Jesus' feet. Normally, guests would have their feet washed first and then anointed with something like olive oil. But this time, Mary uses a very expensive perfume because she's so grateful and thankful for what Jesus did. She tries to express it by anointing Jesus' feet with perfume and wiping his feet with her hair. The expensive perfume fragrance, of course, fills the house. But wait a minute, somebody's not happy. Verse 4. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put in. So apparently, Jesus and his disciples had a common bag, they called it, or a place to hold money that would be donated for their daily support. Some of the ladies did that regularly, the Bible says, like Mary Magdalene, who might come and donate $50 to the bag. Peter and John might sell a boatload of fish and donate money to the bag. And then when it was needed for food or supplies, they took from the bag uh, for everyone who needed it. Somehow, Judas Iscariot got control of the money bag. He probably was willing and capable of handing, handling money and paying bills. But somewhere along the way, he began to make withdrawals from the bag. Illogical as it seems, whenever supplies or food were needed, everybody could take from the bag. But like the money in my desk drawer, Judas just couldn't leave it alone. He had to take it. We don't know to what extent he made withdrawals. We do know he was very angry that the perfume wasn't sold for money. 
with 300 days pay in that bag, withdrawals might have been pretty easy. And so it's clear Judas cannot be trusted. However illogical and irrational it is, when the urge hits him, he cannot resist the urge and he ignores the consequences. So it's clear Judas Iscariot cannot be trusted. You'll probably ask me a question. I hope you're thinking. You have a question for me. So why did Jesus put Judas in charge of the money bag? If Jesus knows what Judas is like, why trust him with a bag? The only answer I can give you is rather a question that I put back to you. Why should Jesus trust you? Can you be trusted? And if you say yes, won't you need a chance to prove you are trustworthy? Jesus gave Judas a chance to prove that he was trustworthy. It was Jesus who told us that the way to measure a person's trustworthiness was this. He said, he that is faithful in little will be faithful in much. And naturally the opposite is true. He that is unfaithful in little will be unfaithful in much. The verses tell us that Judas can't be trusted. And later that night, after everyone else went to bed, we see why Judas can't be trusted. I'm in Matthew 26 and verse 14. One of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priest and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And for that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, on Sunday, Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem amidst a cheering crowd, went straight into the temple. He went back to the temple Monday and Tuesday, preached right under the noses of the people who were conspiring to kill him. They were afraid to arrest Jesus because Jerusalem was full of thousands of people who had come to celebrate Passover, and the people loved Jesus. So they put out a special message, listen to it. Now both the chief priests and Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it that they might take him. Some secret place they're looking for with no crowds, after dark, that's what they wanted. And sure enough, one of Jesus' own disciples 
comes and offers to help them with a question. He leads out his conversation. What will you give me? What will you give me? Some people think that Judas wanted power. Maybe no doubt that's why he took control of the money bag. When Jesus fed the 5,000, they wanted to make Jesus king right there. No doubt Judas was very disappointed when Jesus just slipped away. But after Jesus rode into Jerusalem and didn't seize power, no doubt Judas thought the power now is in the hands of the Jewish leaders. They also have all the money. So Judas asked, what will you give me? In hopes of a payoff. So we know what Judas is thinking. But much more important is what is Jesus thinking? It's now Thursday night of that last week. Jesus and his disciples had come under the cover of darkness into Jerusalem to eat the Passover in what was called the upper room, a private house. Passover dinner is like Thanksgiving dinner to us. It's a time to celebrate. Passover's a time to be happy. It's time to get away with family and friends. It's a time to feast. It's a very pleasant holiday. And suddenly, in the middle of the feast, Jesus turns sad. And he will tell us why. Matthew 26 and verse 20. And when evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. They were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Now, if to think of what their frame of mind is. The disciples think, when Jesus said somebody's going to betray me, that he must be talking way into the future. Maybe 20 years from now when we're all older and tired, maybe somebody then uh, will betray Jesus. Certainly not tonight, though. And so they each consider the possibility that in the distant future, they might be the one to betray him. And they begin to ask all around the table, is it me? Is it me, Lord? And from one to another to another, they go around the table. Now Judas is silent. He doesn't say anything. Verse 23, he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Wow. Woe, woe, Jesus says, to the one who betrays me. Better if he were never born than Judas, who is seated Right next to Jesus, probably on his left side, right there, 
He's right there. Says this, Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast said. Can you imagine? Judas thinks he's done all this in secret, in complete secrecy. All his plans, his meeting with the chief priest, his asking them for money, and his agreement. It's all one big giant secret. So he says to Jesus, and he's right next to Jesus, right here. He said, is it me? And Jesus says quietly, so only Judas can hear, yeah, it's you. Wow. Jesus knows. Judas is discovered. His secret is known. And Jesus said, better to have never been born than to be the one. My friends, there it is. That illogical, unreasonable, irrational conclusion. Jesus knows what I'm planning to do. So for heaven's sakes, don't go through with it, Judas. Abandon your plans. You can stop. Stop. The the next thing said is very telling when it comes to what Jesus has in his mind. John 13, verse 23. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. I'm sorry. John 13, 23. There was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that would be John. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. And lying on Jesus' breath, said unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he dipped it sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now John's laying with head right here and whispers to Jesus who's the traitor now dipping the sop was a tradition something you did at Passover just a regular tradition back in our house at Thanksgiving growing up we always broke the wishbone in the table one of our traditions in Jesus time If you wanted to honor a guest, you dipped a piece of bread in the sauce and you gave it to that guest. Sort of a guest go first thing. And it's also very much a sign of friendship. 
Well, John whispers in Jesus' ear, who's a traitor? And Jesus whispers, it's the one that I give the sop to. And he dips the bread and hands it to Judas, who's right there on his left side. Here's a great moment in history, my friends. Jesus knows Judas is a traitor. He tells Judas right next to him, yeah, it is you, but the deed hasn't been done yet. There's still time to change your mind, Judas. Stop and think, Judas. This is Jesus. You followed him for three and a half years. You've seen him feed 5,000. You've seen him heal the blind and the lame. You've even seen him raise the dead. You've listened to him teach for three and a half years. You've heard his wonderful stories. And now he hands you the sop in an offer of friendship. Judas, what will you do? Will you abandon your plan and accept his friendship? There you are, right next to Jesus. And then the most illogical, irrational choice. No. No. Verse 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus to him, What thou doest, do quickly. When Judas, down inside his heart, silently said no to Jesus, Satan moved right in like a flood. And he claimed his victim, Judas is mine. And Jesus said to Judas, go do it quickly. Now stop for a minute and think. Judas has just decided to go ahead with his plans and betray Jesus to the chief priest. And Satan has whispered in his ear, now Judas... You're in charge of the destiny of Jesus. And you're in control. And Jesus said, what you do, do it quickly. Now, you wonder, how did he say that? Was he angry with Judas? Do it quickly. Was he hurt with Judas? Do it quickly. Or was it something else altogether? Do it quickly. My friends, Jesus also had a plan. And the Jews who counseled together 
to murder Jesus were unwittingly fulfilling Jesus' plan. And now Judas, who in rebellion went out to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, was unwittingly fulfilling Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan to become the Passover lamb the very next day, the real one. And he must be betrayed into the hands of sinners right away. And they must carry out their evil plot. So Jesus says to Judas, do it quick. Do it quick. Because the first thing in the heart of Jesus that he wants more than any other thing is to do the will of his Father in heaven. And his Father's will is that the Son should give his life a ransom for many. So do it quick. Go out and get it done. The second thing Jesus wants to do is to give his life for the people he loves. Peter and John, they're at the table. Mary and Martha, Caiaphas and Judas. And you. And me. Thank you, Jesus. God so loved the world. He gave his son. Jesus willingly gave himself to be sacrifices. And all of his enemies unwittingly against their will were in his plan. So Jesus with all those things now in order. Everything set in motion says to Judas, do it quickly. Get it done. I want to do the will of God. Let it happen that the will of God may be accomplished and that the deep love of Jesus might be displayed for the whole world to see. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, that means crucified, I'll draw all men to me. And so with loving forgiveness in his heart, he was crucified. And facing the challenge, he says, what you do, do it quickly. He willingly went to the cross. My friends, Judas in his rebellion was irrational, illogical in his behavior. He turned his back on Jesus and refused the offer of friendship. Jesus still to this day dips the sop and gives it to us. He still offers us his friendship, a wonderful friendship, open and honest, loyal and kind-hearted friendship. He's an easy person to be with. He makes a wonderful friend. To you today, he offers a relationship guaranteed, faithful and true. Yes, he knows what you have done, just like Judas. But in spite of it, he offers friendship. And with that forgiveness, purchased on his cross, paid for in full. It seems to me that the only logical course of action is to take him as your friend. Will you do what makes sense? Or will you take the $40? I pray you'll be a wise person 
Choose to be the friend of Jesus of Nazareth, and God bless you as you follow him to do his will. And I advise you today, when it's your time to do God's will, may you do it quickly. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you did, how kind you were. It gives us hope, inspires us that you're such a wonderful, wonderful friend. We know that you love us and that you loved even this traitor. We can't always understand the actions of some people. But we pray that we would ever be loyal and faithful and true to you. Bless us as we make that pledge in our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. In closing, like you turn in your hymn book, if you will, page number 550, standing as we sing, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Standing as we sing, 550, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Page 550. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me.
listen to your call. <clears throat> we know the moments are fleeting by us and they're passing. We have the opportunity to listen. We have the opportunities to change our mind and to step forth and do the right thing. We pray that we would do it at this moment. We pray that we would take that opportunity. Help us, Lord, <coughs> to listen to your spirit, to listen to your call, saying, come home. We just pray that our hearts would be ready to openly receive you. Help us to listen and talk to you, Lord. And we are grateful for this place of worship we can come to. May we ever be able to come here and worship you. We are thankful for this time. We ask that you protect our people wherever they might be. Bring us all back to this place, we pray. In your name, amen. amen.